We're not here today simply because we believe there was an empty tomb. To be honest, we might find other explanations for an empty tomb. We're here today because we believe in a risen Savior. That's why we're here. A Savior who defeated death, who rose from the grave, who rose triumphantly, who appeared to literally hundreds of eyewitnesses who ascended into heaven and who said, I'll be back. I'm going to return. This morning, we're going to read a kind of a big chunk of scripture, but I think it's important for us to hear God's word and to let it sink in, soak in to our lives. We want to begin by looking in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. If you've got your Bibles, you can open with us there. Uh, The good news is we're going to pick up a little later in Luke 24, so just hang on. You don't have to go very far. Luke chapter 24, we're going to begin with verse 1. If you don't have your Bibles, the words will be up here on the screen for you this morning. And this is what the Word of God says. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they'd prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others who told this to the apostles. But they didn't believe the women. Because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. And bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Fast forward to verse 36. We're going to look at chapter 24, Luke's gospel, verses 36 to 47. And while they were standing talking about all this, Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking that they'd seen a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you have seen. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins 
will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Father God, it is likely that we have read or have heard these words read to us more than once, perhaps dozens of times. Lord, today I pray that we hear these words anew. That they become as fresh for us, as exciting for us today as in the day we first believed. Let your word dwell in us richly. Let it cause great joy. And Lord, let it motivate us to both live for Christ and to share his name throughout the world. For we pray this in his name. Amen. If the resurrection is central to the Christian faith and essential for there even to be a Christian faith, and it is, then it might behoove us this morning to spend a few minutes considering the validity of this truth. In other words, is the resurrection of Jesus something solid on which we can stand? Is it a firm rock? Or is it more like tissue paper? We don't want to put too much weight on it, too much, give too much thought to it because somehow we might fall through. If it's true, there's great meaning in that. If it's not true, there's great meaning in that. Now, there have been some down through the centuries who've said, I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And have offered to us alternatives. Other options of what might have happened to this Jesus who was put in a tomb. I'd like to share some of those with you this morning. And I would like us to put on our thinking caps and really consider Do these hold any validity at all? So let me give you these four theories, and we'll start with the first one. And the first one's pretty simple. They went to the wrong tomb. This is a theory that was posited that that here's, here's the situation. Remember, two things are at play here. Number one, Jesus was taken down from the cross, and he was buried very quickly in a tomb, a borrowed tomb. It belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. And they had to quickly prepare the body and quickly put the body in the tomb and, and, and get everything settled before sundown because sundown on Friday is the start of the Sabbath and there was no work to be done on the Sabbath. And so it was done very, very quickly. It was rushed. Plus, you can imagine those who followed Jesus had invested three years of their lives. They'd really put all their hopes, all their dreams, and they've attached it to Jesus. And now, Everything that they thought about, everything that they dreamed of, everything that they had imagined, somehow it all began to crumble around them. And so there's disappointment, there's disillusionment. Oh, and there's grief. You know this. You've lost someone you dearly loved. You understand what grief can do to your heart, to your mind, to your life. And so this theory says that because it was so rushed, because they were so grief-stricken, that what happened was they just went to the wrong tomb. They may have gone to the, the same garden, but they went to 
an empty tomb. A tomb that had been prepared for burial, but not yet used. And when they went in, it would not be surprising to find that it was empty. There's the theory. They went to the wrong tomb. Now, are there any flaws with this? Well, I think we could probably find more than one, but let me give you the major flaw with this. After they found the tomb was empty, they began to tell everyone that Jesus was alive and that they'd seen him. And rumors began to spread around Jerusalem that this Jesus who the Jews, some of the Jews considered messiahs and some of the, some of the Romans were worried might be king, that this Jesus was not dead but had somehow come alive, gotten out of the tomb, and was now hanging around with his disciples. Well, if you were one of the Jewish authorities that made sure Jesus was killed, or you were Pontius Pilate and the Roman authorities that had sealed the tomb, you would think that they could pretty well put an end to these rumors very quickly by going to the tomb themselves, ripping off the seal, rolling the stone away, and bringing out the decaying body of Jesus to say, here, here's your Messiah. Here's your king. But they didn't do it. Simple answer. If they went to the wrong place, it would be easily provable. So what about the next theory? The next theory is that Jesus' followers were so filled with grief that they hallucinated the resurrection. They hallucinated the, that Jesus had come back to them. Remember, grief's a powerful thing. It kind of distorts the way we think about life. It sometimes keeps us up at night. We can't even sleep. We can't get any rest. And, and perhaps, this theory says, their grief was so deep and so traumatic that they actually saw or thought they saw Jesus. It wasn't really Jesus. It's just a hallucination, a figment of their imagination, a a mirage created from the depths of their grief. Any flaws with that? Well, if we think about this, if it had happened and it was just Mary at the tomb who who saw Jesus, or perhaps Peter or John, or, or just two or three of them, you might think, okay, perhaps, perhaps there's some truth to this. Perhaps somehow they could have imagined that they saw Jesus. I mean, I've talked to people who, who believe, and, and I'm not going to argue with them because I'm not there with them, but you know that, that they've had a deceased spouse and they'd wake up and they'd be standing at the foot of the bed. Now, I, I, can't, I can't vouch for that. Never seen it, never experienced anything like that. But we've heard of these things. This, I mean, you may have heard some things like this before and so some of it might make sense except we got a bit of a problem here if you go on to read into the book of acts we discover that jesus appeared to hundreds of people not just one eyewitness but hundreds of eyewitnesses i'm not sure i've ever heard of a case of mass hallucination hallucination okay never i don't think i've ever heard of that that everybody imagined it so that doesn't really make a lot of sense what about the third theory the third theory is this it's called the swoon theory that jesus didn't really die he just passed out 
This is the way the theory goes. Jesus obviously was severely beaten, lost a lot of blood, carried his cross at least part way up to Calvary, was crucified, hung up on a cross. And the soldiers mistakenly believed that he was dead because he passed out. Now, just to make sure, they ran a spear up through his heart. You might want to hold on to that thought. Then they took him down, and he was buried in the tomb. And the theory states that all that he went through, and he was passed out, that somehow during this process, late Saturday night, early Sunday morning, he came to and said, I don't think I'm supposed to be here. And he went over to the stone and he rolled it away. And then he went and appeared to his disciples and said, here I am. Told you I was coming back. I am here. There's the theory. Any flaws in that? (laughs) I think we could poke a lot of holes in this one. Anyone who'd experienced the torture that Jesus experienced, who had undergone crucifixion and who had had the spear thrust up through his side to pierce his heart, It would have been a shock to anybody if he showed back up. But not only that, having endured all that he endured, to have the strength to roll a massive stone away and then to show up for his disciples as a victorious conquering king seems a little far-fetched. Even for skeptics like David Friedrich Strauss, who is a secular historian who does not believe in the divinity of Jesus, but this is what he wrote. It is impossible that a being who had stolen, by stolen, he doesn't mean taken something, he means kind of crept out or, or sneaked out. It is impossible that a being who had stolen half dead out of the sepulcher, that is the tomb, who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening, and indulgence, and who still at last yielded to his sufferings, could have given to the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death in the grave, the prince of life. In other words, if this thing were true at all, nobody would have mistaken Jesus for having risen from the dead. The fourth theory is this. The disciples stole the body and lied about the resurrection. They made the whole thing up. Let's think about this. The theory goes that these disciples, having Jesus having been crucified and buried, that they somehow mustered the courage. Remember, these are these these disciples, it's kind of interesting as you look through the gospels, they're, they're not always painted in the best light. They're sometimes seen as rather dim-witted. They, they, don't kind of, they don't get it very quickly. And they're also painted, as we look at what happened with Jesus and how they scattered, as, as maybe a bit cowardly, running away, abandoning Jesus. But the theory says that these disciples somehow got the courage to, run, to go to the tomb and to run off the Roman guards. These are, these are hardened soldiers, okay? This is not like Gomer Pyle with a, with a, with a rifle. This, these are hardened soldiers standing at the tomb, standing guard with a Roman seal. Listen, their lives are on the line if that seal is broken. 
These guys would defend it to their lives. But these disciples somehow showed up and ran them off, rolled the stone away, went in, got the dead body of Jesus out, hid it somewhere, maybe buried it somewhere, and then made up this story that Jesus was alive. Any flaws with that? (laughs) Well, yeah, I think we could find a few. First of all, the whole story. But secondly, think about these men. These 11 remaining disciples. Sometimes dull-witted. Sometimes a little cowardly. These 11 disciples never recanted their story. At the risk of life and limb, they stuck to it. That this Jesus, whom we followed, rose from the grave. That's our story. We're sticking to it. In fact, we're going to do more than stick to it. We're going to go tell the world. Starting right here in Jerusalem, we're going to go tell the world that Jesus did this. They stuck to it. These men sacrificed everything, family, friends, and ultimately their own lives in order to stick to, according to this theory, a lie. Something they'd made up with absolutely nothing to gain. What happened to these men? Well, church tradition gives us their end. We know what happened with Judas Iscariot, but what about the others? Bartholomew was said to be skinned alive and then beheaded. I think I'd rather have it the other way around. James the Younger stoned and clubbed to death. Andrew and Peter crucified upside down. Thomas impaled by a spear. James the Elder beheaded. Philip crucified. Matthew burned to death. Jude and Simon the Zealot either sawed or axed to death. And then John. We say, okay, John's the, John's the lucky one. They didn't kill him. They just exiled him onto a rocky island named Patmos. However, according to church tradition, they did try to kill him. They tried to boil him to death, but he didn't die. And it was after that that he was exiled. Now listen. What would make these sometimes dense and sometimes cowardly men, what would make them keep preaching the resurrected Savior even at the cost of their lives? What would make them take this message of a risen Savior to the ends of the earth, to Mesopotamia, to Persia, to Asia Minor, to India, to Rome, and perhaps even to China? What would cause him to to have such fervor, such passion, such commitment that they'd rather die than quit talking about the risen Savior? The only reasonable explanation for the unyielding faith of the disciples and the great sacrifice that they gave in fulfilling the Great Commission is the resurrection. That is the only reasonable explanation. So instead of asking what if it's not true, 
Let's ask, what if it is true? What if they did see their teacher, their master, their rabbi? What if they did see him arrested and crucified and buried? Three days later, saw him alive, glorious and victorious. And what if they not only saw him, but they touched him? They put their fingers into the nail prints in his hands and his feet and put their hand into his side where the spear thrust into him. And what if they did more than touch him? What if they ate with him? Saw him consume food? And what if this risen Savior then challenged them? What you've seen, what you've experienced, what you've heard, go tell the world. Do you think something like that could change these weak and unstable men into an unstoppable force? Only the resurrection makes sense. It all boils down to this. If the resurrection of Jesus is not true, then the Christian faith has nothing on which to stand It is a house of cards that can be easily tumbled by a gentle breeze or the touch of a curious toddler. The Apostle Paul was honest enough to say that if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then our preaching's in vain. So is your faith. If Jesus isn't alive, then of all people in the world, we're to be most pitied. Because we bought into the lie. We believe something that's completely untrue. And we based our lives on it. The resurrection is the heart of our faith. Without the resurrection, you take away the resurrection, all this other stuff. It doesn't matter. Because Jesus is still dead. And so would Christianity be. But if the resurrection is true, Jesus is alive, death is defeated, and you and I have a hope, a hope that this life isn't all there is. That when you go and visit the cemetery, for us, it's not a period, but a come. That there's something more to come. There's another chapter for us. If that's true, then you and I have a promise of eternal joy in the presence of a creator who not only made us, but he loved us and sent his son to die for us and to rise for us so that we could be with him forever. Folks, we're not alone. And we're not abandoned. Jesus is alive, and because he lives, we live. And that's not only true in the forever It's true now. Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full.
have it to the full. When I think of that, I, I think about kids because as they start to grow a little older, you know when they're small, you kind of pour their milk or pour their juice or pour whatever it is, but they get to a certain point where they, they get really excited about growing up and doing adult things like pouring things. We don't think of that being an adult thing, but it is. I get to hold the milk jug. I get to hold the, the half gallon of, of orange juice, of apple juice. I get to do that. I get to pour it. Now, think how a child pours when they're just starting out. You know, you might give them a, a third of a glass, maybe, maybe half a glass. Oh, but not that child. No, that child wants it to the very top. And they pour with reckless abandon. That's why for years my kitchen stayed sticky. They, I mean, they don't just... Okay, that's, no, just, just a little more, just, no. When you read this verse, that's the picture you need. He's come to give us life to the full. Let me tell you what, Jesus pours it out with reckless abandon. He's not, he doesn't settle for half measures. He's not getting out the measuring cup. He's pouring with reckless abandon, with extreme extravagance, which I think is an oxymoron, but it works. He wants us to have life and have it full and overflowing. Not just then, but now. I have two challenges. Two challenges for you this morning for Really two different groups of people. The first challenger for those of you who have not settled this issue of Jesus in your life. I mean, you like him all right. But you've not given yourself fully to him. You, you like this idea of the Christian life, but you really aren't there yet. My first challenge is to you. Quit fighting the call of God. That tug that you feel on your heart, that's God. His Spirit is is drawing you. No man comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. Oh, and you felt that tugging, haven't you? Time after time, God has has spoken to you and you've heard it. It's penetrated deep. And the pastor, the preacher, stands at the front and he says, hey, listen, if you want to respond to Jesus, today's your day. We're going to sing a song here, an invitation song, final song, whatever they call it. And as that song's singing, if the Holy Spirit's drawing you to himself, if you need Jesus as your Savior and Lord, this is your time, this is your day. Come, come. Come. And you sat there and you said, I think he's talking to me. I think the Holy Spirit's tugging on me. And you started to get out of your seat and you you started to take those tentative steps down the aisle and you And then the song's over. And you think, well, maybe next week.
Maybe next week I'll go. Maybe next week I won't wait till the last verse of the song. I'll get up when the song starts and I'll, I'll, maybe next week. The reality is today's the next week you thought about last week. God's word says very clearly, indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. My second challenge is to you who are in Christ. I want you to hear this because we we think, okay, you know, I've got my fire insurance. I'm good to go. I believed in Jesus. I, was, I came forward. I, I was baptized. I, I'm good. Here's my challenge to you. If you've been quenching the Holy Spirit's work in your life, quit. Stop it. God's trying to do stuff in you. He's trying to make something in you. He wants the fruit of the Spirit to be produced in you. He wants your life to look more like Jesus. Maybe today what you need to do, and there's no better day to do it, is to say, Lord, have your way. Tried it my way. There's not a whole lot of life, not abundant. There's not a whole lot of peace the way I'm doing it. There's not a whole lot of joy the way I'm doing it. My life is just constant turmoil, and there's no eye of the storm for me. I'm always out on the fringe. I'm caught up in a tornado, or worse, maybe even a sharknado, and I'm just being tossed about. Have your way. Change me. Mold me. Make me. Move me. And so today I'm not leaving this place, Lord, without committing myself to following Jesus, really following Jesus. I'm tired of settling for poor substitutes. I will settle for nothing less than all of me given to all of you. You see, Jesus didn't come just to give us life in heaven. He did come to give us that. But he came to give us a new life today and every day. He came to change us, not from the outside in, You've tried that. It came to change us from the inside out. He saved us so that we might show the world what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus. You and I, like the disciples we mentioned a little bit earlier, are called to be witnesses to the difference that trusting Jesus really makes. Will you accept the challenge? Those of you who are Christians, you profess Christ, but you know you've been trying to live this life your own way. You've been trying to do it your way, to go your way, and today you're willing to say, no more. It's God's way. I've decided I'm following Jesus not just in word, but with my life. Some of you may need to accept that other challenge. To hear God say today, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, not next year, today is the day of salvation. And if you need Jesus, I cannot think of a better day
than today. Let me pray with you and for you. Heavenly Father, I come now in the powerful name of Jesus. I come to ask that you would do what my words can't do, what no song can do, but what only your spirit can do. And that is move people, not just out of their seats, but to move their hearts, to move their lives off center, to break out of the rut, to cast off the chains, to take a step, a literal step of faith, to embrace Jesus, to follow Jesus. There are few of us, Lord, who don't need to answer that call. But many who will say next week, maybe tomorrow, Lord, have your way and have it today. We are here to celebrate the life we have in Christ. And we are here to begin to live that life. Not only today, but every day. Have your way with us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.